Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. In late April 1945, the Second World War was drawing to a close in Europe. Just before the formal German surrender on the 7th of May, there was confusion in the various fighting zones, with Allied and German forces unsure if they should keep on fighting or not. It was during this strange limbo period that my father found himself in a remote part of Italy, having a bizarre personal duel with the enemy. This happened when my dad was scouting the terrain in part of the country called the Po di Villano, a place of tiny roads that crossed a maze of ditches. One early morning, after a few hours of lumpy sleep in his jeep, he set off down the road on foot to carry out reconnaissance. Having progressed 200 yards or so, and having turned off at various junctions and forks, he found himself shrouded by a morning mist. Visibility was down to 15 yards, and so he stopped, concerned he'd lose the way back to his jeep. Although he knew the Allies had secured the region, more or less, there was always the chance of meeting Germans cut off from their lines. As he stood there trying to orientate himself, he heard the clanking sound of tank tracks. At first, he didn't know where the sound was coming from or how many tanks were involved. He listened carefully and realised to his great relief that it was just a single tank and most likely an American Sherman, and it was coming towards him. Perhaps the tank crew would tell him where he was, or even better, take him to his jeep. As the sound of engine noise grew louder, the mist parted, and suddenly the monstrous shape of a German Tiger tank, all 60 tonnes of it, loomed into view. The Tiger was the most deadly of all German tanks, costing twice as much as the Panzer to produce. My father, who was standing in the middle of the road, stared in horror at this apparition. Above the turret, a German officer was speaking quietly into his intercom to his crew below. Whatever it was he said, the tank now came to a halt, and my dad was gazing at the longest gun barrel he'd ever seen. My father and the German officer embarked upon a staring match, like two gunslingers in a western. And perhaps in this spirit, my father found himself reaching for his holster, taking out his pistol and raising it towards the tank, as if to arrest it in the name of the law. The German officer, who clearly was expecting my dad to either scarper down the road or jump into the misty verge, was taken aback by this madcap, aggressive gesture. But instead of giving the order to blast my dad to smithereens, he smiled and very coolly pointed at his tank's huge gun barrel. He was making the obvious point that a pistol wouldn't really be a match for it. To emphasise this point, the German raised his finger and wagged it slowly several times, as if he were a father telling off a naughty son. 
My father stood there transfixed, still holding out his arm and pistol, still trying not to let his hand shake. It was not so much a deadly confrontation between two enemies, but a scene from a Charlie Chaplin film. But finally, it was the German officer who blinked. He gave instructions to his crew, and the tank turned and clanked away. As the mist enveloped the vehicle, the German officer swiveled round to give my dad a parting half-salute. It was perhaps more of a wave, expressing various sentiments ranging from next time, don't be a bloody fool, to goodbye and good luck. Whatever the salute meant, my father found himself waving back. He then started walking in the vague direction of his jeep, wondering who would ever believe that he had sent a tiger tank packing single-handedly without firing a single shot. I saw the film on Colleen Kewen in the Curzon Cinema in Soho in London. It hadn't been out long and there were fewer than a dozen people at the matinee. Afterwards, in the ladies' loo, I found a woman dabbing her streaming eyes with a folded tissue. Without thinking, I spoke to her in Irish. I live my life between London and Kirkogrina, so perhaps I'd remembered one of my West Kerry neighbours, describing how when Ryan's daughter opened at the Leicester Square Empire, he and a bunch of other lads from Dingle, who spent their days digging trenches for British gas, had sobbed aloud at the sight of the cliffs above Dunchwein. Anyway, when I saw the lady peering at her ravaged face in the mirror, I said, and was met by a smeary stare. Then, when I repeated it in English, wonderful, wasn't it? She gulped, nodded, and told me that when she decided to see it, she just liked the poster and hadn't realised it was a foreign film. What blew me away most about Anjalin Kewen was the role played in its storytelling by pitch-perfect design. The kitchen with its buckets of water and patterned formica tabletop. The heartbreaking bedroom wallpaper. The evocation of a time when, alongside Duns and Pennies, small-town Ireland still had shops selling children's frocks with Peter Pan collars and sashes. And the conjuring of that entire town simply by showing a backstreet car park. Since then, I've heard Dublin friends complain that the Ireland the film depicts looks more like the 1950s than the 1980s. This may say more about Dublin's view of rural Ireland than about Colleen Kuhn's design. It certainly set me thinking about visual images of Ireland in my lifetime and of those who lived through the creation and evolution of the visions of Ireland we take for granted today. My Aunt Kathleen was an icon of my 1960s childhood. 
Born in 1910, she lived through the 1916 Rising, in which her teenage cousin Marion took an active role in coming them on, was evacuated during the Civil War to the Wexford countryside and arrived in 1930s Dublin determined to embrace life. I adored her little flat at the top of Grafton Street, which always seemed dusty and chaotic, as if she regarded time spent there as time wasted. She dressed in the height of fashion, her meals consisted of cheese and wine, and her bookcases were stacked with well-worn maps. When I was in UCD in the 1970s, Kathleen gave me a beaver jacket with huge turned-back cuffs, bought in Bond Street in her own youth. I remember her flashing me a grin as I pedalled off on my bike to lectures, wearing the jacket over a crushed velvet maxi dress with Guatemalan toe socks under my platform clogs. Kathleen was an art film buff, a free spirit, and an inveterate traveller who, well into her 80s, gardened using a battered silver serving spoon as a trowel and spent weekends in Paris or Rome. When I speak of her, some people think she was uncharacteristic of her time, as the 1950s and 60s Ireland of popular memory is a barren place, stifled by church repression and by de Valera's post-war isolationism. But what's sometimes forgotten is that it was also the era of an experiment in the fusion of art and commerce, driven by another 1916 freedom fighter, Sean Lamass. As Minister for Industry and Commerce, Lamas used Ireland's geographical position to rebrand it as a gateway via Shannon Airport for Americans eager to explore Europe's post-war art, literature and tourist resorts. The country he and people like Kathleen envisaged was open and eager to embrace the world. Yet, I also remember... Archbishop McQuaid's outrageous removal of Fergus O'Farrell's minimalist figures from the crib at Dublin Airport, priests shutting down rural dance halls and books, plays and films censored or banned by the state. Many of us in the arts emigrated as a result of such constraints. I took the boat in the mid-1970s, carrying a bag bought from Hector Gray's in Liffey Street. And among the objects I packed was a 1920s leather pencil case made by Kathleen's younger sister, Evie. It was decorated in poker work with a long, squiggly Celtic Revival cat. I'd chosen to bring it partly from an emigrant's sense of family nostalgia, but its squiggly cat was also the height of 1970s fashion, suggestive of Bieber's sinuous curves and of Jim Fitzpatrick's posters of Maeve and Eru, which hung in my rented London digs alongside his iconic image of Che Guevara. So, portraying any one of those complex decades on film isn't easy. And you might say, why bother? People's memories are short and audiences often prefer simplistic broad-brush versions of the past. But just as emotional truth matters... Visual accuracy lies at the heart of the best storytelling. And that's the truth demonstrated by the masterful visual choices made in the design of Colleen Hewin.
Yosef was wearing dungarees. He had long blonde hair, a beard, those John Lennon glasses with round lenses, and a guitar. We met him one night with a group of young Germans in the Audimax bar in the small town of Vermelskirchen in the Ruhr Valley. Calm and cool, he was writing some of his own songs and they were in English because, he said, that was the language of rock music, of protest and of anti-war sentiment. It was 1979 and, like many other Irish students, I'd come to Germany to take advantage of the high wages on offer there for summer work. Very few of us had travelled before. Germany was a new world. I got a job in a factory polishing compressor blades for jet engines. Our work life was spent largely with guest workers from Turkey, Yugoslavia and elsewhere. Our social life was spent in the company of young Germans. We went out late and we went to work early. The popular culture and the politics were different. They favoured a particular genre of pop music which relied heavily on the synthesizer. Very many young Germans talked politics. They were alarmed by the arms race and the presence of huge numbers of missiles in West Germany pointing east and in East Germany pointing west. While Josef wrote his songs in English, he was concerned that his English might not say exactly what he intended. One evening, after we'd become friends, he showed me the lyrics of a song that he was working on and he asked me to sense-check the language. As I read them, he took his guitar and played a slow series of blue-style chords and sang I wake up in the morning after a short sleep with alcohol. I wake up in the morning and I see my face. Then I go to work and put my brain in my suitcase. This, he explained, was to be followed by an intense guitar solo, which would go on for some time. Would his English work for native speakers, he asked. I said that the alienated guy waking up in the morning after his night on the drink would probably be putting his brain in his briefcase rather than in his suitcase. He changed the lyrics. If he was Lennon, I was now McCartney. I stayed for a while on a mattress on the floor of the flat shared by Josef and his girlfriend Ute. There were posters on the wall giving details of rock concerts and festivals. I didn't know many of the artists, but I saw Joe Cocker had been playing recently in Dortmund. There was a giant black and white photo of an aerial view of the Arc de Triomphe and surrounding streets. Paris is the capital of the world, Ute told me. There were plants in pots and bead curtains dividing the kitchen from the rest of the flat. I don't think all the cigarettes they smoked were legal. The insight they gave me into a different world was thrilling. Their parents and their parents' friends had been young adults during the war, they told me, but they rarely spoke about it. The pillars of society in the town where we were living were of the same generation, they said, but the silence about those days was as if nobody had been alive back then at all. But there were some signs that things were beginning to change. Earlier that year, over four nights in January 1979, German TV had broadcast the four-part American miniseries Holocaust, starring Meryl Streep and James Wood. It was watched by a third of West Germany's population. Until then, documentaries and writings on the Holocaust had been based on facts and unimaginably large figures. They were about the perpetrators and the consequences for them. But this was about two families, real people. Ute sobbed, telling me of the impact that it had on her. She was not alone in her response, Within a few years, the German school approach changed and Holocaust education became mandatory. Summer ran on. I hitchhiked huge distances at weekends, speeding down autobahns in cars and big juggernaut trucks, sleeping sometimes under bridges and in public parks. 
the cars with the huge anti-nuclear power stickers would always pick you up. The drivers liked to talk, and they didn't mind naive questions from a 19-year-old. A few days before I went home, I saw a pair of blue and white striped dungarees in a shop window. Back home, you wore jeans and a jumper to college. It was practically the male student uniform. But in Germany, there was much more colour and variety. I suppose I thought the dungarees would represent me as the open-minded, cosmopolitan individual I imagined I had become. Back in Dublin, I'm not sure that others recognise my new dungarees as an expression of my newly widened horizons. People stared. Some made remarks. It seemed that I would have to keep aspects of my immersion in German counterculture to myself. I started to wear them less often and then not at all. I thought of Ute and Josef some years later as I watched the Berlin Wall coming down on TV, the young people cheering and singing, the more athletic ones on top of the wall with their pickaxes, slowly breaking it into pieces, bringing their country together. I knew Ute would feel this was her country now, being reshaped by her generation. I often wonder did Josef ever escape the commute to work with his brain in his suitcase. I hope he did. What the hell is that? I've just been called out onto the roof where four of my housemates, half-finished cigarettes between their fingertips, are standing in a semicircle around an object I can't quite see. What the hell is what? I say, slightly irritated at the sudden urgency. That, one of them says, pointing down at the object. All my annoyance is suddenly gone, and I feel like bursting into laughter. What they're looking at with so much confusion is a jar of pickles. Not just any jar of pickles, a jar of Eastern European pickles. Its owner, our Romanian housemate who occupies the rooftop room, is away. The jar has sat out there on the roof, exposed to the elements, for as long as the guy has lived here. The sun's just setting now, a ray of golden light shining right through the jar, which somehow makes it look all the more horrifying. By now the vinegar water is so murky that you can't clearly make out the contents. There are a few cucumbers, a shade of dark green that's verging on brown, several cherry tomatoes, bits of herb, and torn up leaves I can't quite identify. With the best will in the world, it doesn't look like something you would want to eat. I tilt my head and walk around it. Why do you bring it out of the corner? We wanted to see what it was. Don't just go disturbing it like that for no good reason, I say. Disturbing it? What, it's alive or something? Of course it is, I say deadpan. I can tell they're not sure if I'm joking or not. You can keep it outside like that and it's still okay. Pretty much. But there's mold floating on top of that. The man approaches the jar with theatrical caution and points to the film of white and grey fuzz covering the top of the liquid. Look at it! Oh, don't be such a diva. You can just take that off. Another one of my housemates observes the jar in silence for a while with his brows furrowed. It looks spoiled. Shouldn't we throw that out? 
No, 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 I say with too much urgency. Why not? Because you can't. I won't let you. It comes out a little harsher than intended. I don't really know the guy who keeps the jar out here. We don't speak much beyond, hi, and how's it going, and do you have a lighter? Even so, I will infinitely defend his right to keep this jar of possibly spoiled pickles. Not because I think it would be a great bonding exercise for all of us to have a taste of some weather-beaten cucumbers, but because these are homemade pickles. A jar of homemade pickles means someone saying, I love you and I hope you are well, without so many words. This is a piece of home, and here, so far away from all things familiar, it is a great comfort. A picture paints itself in my mind of late summer, after the cucumber harvest. My grandfather's rough hands, coated with a layer of dirt, the whole kitchen smelling like earth and cucumber stems. My grandmother is boiling water, adding vinegar. The smell burns all the way up to my brain. Dill, tomatoes, blackcurrant leaves, nettle, bright green cucumbers, all filled in various jars, with mismatched labels, saying things like soup or beets. Vaguely familiar melodies flow from the ancient radio on the other side of the stove, below rows of dried garlic and wild herbs. This is a tradition that is slowly dying out. Every next generation is less likely to stick to it, Slow, conscious practices like these are being pushed out by the modern world. There are never enough hours in a day, never enough days in a year, certainly not enough to wait for a cucumber harvest. My mother has never made pickles, and I know that I won't either. I call my grandmother to tell her about the jar of pickles, but not, of course, to tell her that they're making me a little homesick. That kind of sentiment is not easily understood or accepted. Eastern European grandmothers in their old age tend to be a little sharp, vinegar running through their veins. You know what they were saying on the news the other day, she says. There's some kind of chemical they use on imported vegetables that will make you fat if you don't wash them carefully. Make sure you wash your vegetables. You absolutely don't want to become fat. Where'd you hear all that, Grandma? I don't know. They had someone on the talk show last night. And that makes them credible. Don't be smart with me. You always talk back like this, never listening to my good advice. I sigh. All right, I'll make sure to wash my vegetables, okay? Well, you don't have to do it just because I said so. Stop talking nonsense and go to bed on time. Her voice sounds annoyed, but I know that this is the only way she knows to express her love and care. Okay, Grandma, you go to sleep on time too. I'll sleep when I want to. She cuts the call and I close my eyes an expression of warm amusement on my face. I go back to check on the pickles the next morning, and the jar is back in its designated corner on the roof, now with a crooked smiley face drawn on it in black marker, a little note stuck under it, our new housemate.
On Christmas Eve in Rome, I went for a walk. Through the shadowed, cobbled back streets that lead from the old working-class quarter of Trastevere, by the banks of the Tiber, to the Vatican. In the houses, families were gathering. Radios played Pacini. The darkness of the alleys seemed sanctified by hope. I was thinking of Hugh O'Flaherty. I can't remember the first time I heard his story, but I've an idea it was in Listowel, County Kerry. Late one night, perhaps in John B. Keane's bar, someone told me about Hugh O'Flaherty's courage in Rome during World War II, how he and a small band of fellow activists saved thousands from the Nazis. Home in London, the more I researched him, the more I was amazed. Five years ago, when I was wondering what to write a novel about, Hugh came knocking on my windows. His courage is gripping, but it is also inspiring. It always had the makings of a tense psychological thriller, I thought, with a beautiful soundtrack ranging from Italian opera to Palestrina, and that's what I hoped to create when finally I sat down to write his story. But there are other colours and implications to that story too, including the ones that altered my own life. Born in Cork, raised in Kerry, Hugh came of age around the mistrust of English soldiers that was one bequest of the Black and Tans. Yet his journey took him to a point where he lived stubbornly by his own moral compass, even when faced with the threat of Gestapo interrogation and execution. He was that rarest of things, a person who wouldn't take orders from any side commanded by the Irish government, as well as the Vatican and the Germans, to cease his work. He continued his secret and perilous mission, saving 7,000 escaped British and American prisoners from death. His small group of trusted activists came from very different backgrounds. Sir Francis Darcy Osborne, Britain's ambassador to the Holy See, was a public school-educated aristocrat who had at one time been close to the late Queen Mother. He and Hugh became co-conspirators. Newark-on-Trent-born Lieutenant Colonel Sam Derry of the Royal Artillery was a tower of strength for the escape line, a stunningly brave soldier who had himself escaped Nazi camps several times, on one occasion by jumping from a moving train. There was John May, a cockney, a servant at the British Embassy, described by Derry as a brilliant scrounger. It's touching that this group of such high-minded human rights defenders also needed one thief. Also central to the escape line was Delia Kiernan, known to fans of Irish folk music as the great Delia Murphy. Married to Ireland's senior diplomat in Rome, Thomas Kiernan, the first director of Radio Erin, Delia quietly flouted Dublin's insistence on non-involvement in the war, showing tremendous personal courage in assisting Hugh. It was in February 2020, as Covid came to Ireland, that I sat down to write Hugh's story. What a blessing, when I remember the fear and unease of those months, the headlines, the sufferings and the courage of carers. The world shrank to two kilometres, but I was going to Rome every day. I decided to call the book My Father's House, after a saying of Jesus, in my father's house are many rooms. Hugh hid fugitives in attics and cellars, in outhouses and monasteries, in the many secret rooms of hidden Rome. 
Every morning, I made myself write a thousand words about him. He was one of the things that helped to keep me sane. I walked around Rome with him, looked through his eyes, attempted to understand a man so many times more heroic than I could ever be. I set the story on Christmas Eve because the Romans love Christmas, but also because the story of the first Christmas has its own vein of persecutions. There are angels, but there is also Herod. I wrote hundreds of sentences and would almost hear Hugh telling me, no, that's not right, or I didn't talk the way you have me talking, I was from Kerry, not Dunleary. Sometimes Hugh made me laugh, once or twice he made me cry. Morning after morning, sentence after sentence, as his story appeared on my pages. Looking at it now, a finished book, I sometimes wonder where it came from, through that frightened, panicky time, when even in isolation we relied so much on each other. But I know, of course, it came from the Hugh O'Flaherty who lived in my head through the lockdown, my lamplighter through the book that is now his. I thought of him as I walked the back streets of his beloved adoptive city on Christmas Eve, his stubborn, quiet defiance, his hidden passion for justice, his extraordinary modesty, his love. The stars of Christmas glittered in the cold Roman sky over St. Peter's and the Colosseum, over the steeples and palaces. In the alleys through which he led so many thousands to freedom, I felt his brave and noble spirit move like a rumour, a Roman, a scholar, a carryman, a hero. Europe. It was autumn on walkabout in Bavaria. Plum trees, pears. With the last of my cash, I bought potato bread and ate it with some Leverwurst. In Freiburg, I starved for three days and lay on the river bank, watching my island float far above me, a dark shape in the blue vault. Some day I would surface there. In the hostel I met another journeyman, a girl from Hamburg, aged 14. I marvelled at her daring, her empty blue eyes, her sense of being completely there. I imagined her in the 14th century, in a flat-chested velvet brocade dress, being married off to an ancient creaking Teutonic knight who took her to his Baltic castle, where, surrounded by Slavs and Letts, she would give birth to a horde of men, philosophers, warriors, engineers and hunters. On our last day we shook hands on a bridge across the river. She proffered her cheek to kiss. Then she turned to the east. On this morning's programme we heard High Noon by James Harper Images of Ireland by Felicity Hayes-McCoy 
A New World was by Mark Brennock. Pickles by Katrina Bruna. Courage in the Alleys, Hugh O'Flaherty, was by Joseph O'Connor. And Europe, a poem by Michael O'Loughlin. The music was The Theme from The Good, The Bad and The Ugly by Ennio Morricone. Idy Negrene by Steve Cooney. Forever Young by Alphaville. Melancholic Waltz by Emile's Darzing and The Coventry Carol, sung by the Sixteen. Joseph O'Connor's novel about Hugh O'Flaherty, My Father's House, is published by Harville Secker. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. To listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio player or the programme website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen miscellany. You can also follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter and all the usual podcast platforms. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.